think I got it all. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2. <coughs> As you turn there, let me pray. Father God, thank you this morning uh, for your word, Lord. I am uh, amazed once again that uh, you've granted me the privilege, Lord, to open up your word for your people. And so I, I pray, Lord, that everything I say will be in line with the scriptures. And where it's not, Father, I pray you will just have it not be lodged in the minds of, of your people, but rather we would just forget anything that doesn't line up. And so, Father, we pray for our time together this morning and pray um, that we would be encouraged uh, from Hannah's prayer this morning as we realize it's really all of our prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to speak a bit this morning pastorally to you. Now, I believe I do this every week. Uh, every week when I open up the scriptures, I think I try to be pastorally to you uh, because the scriptures should meet us where we are. But I imagine some of you are feeling the tension and the dissonance within your souls this week, perhaps that you haven't felt before, or if you have, perhaps you haven't been worried or wrestled through it for some time. And the tension and the dissonance that I'm speaking of this morning is nothing unusual for followers of Christ. But it might be becoming more and more evident in your life. The tension and dissonance I'm referring to is the type of feeling you get in your soul when everyone around you seems to be heading in a direction that is contrary to everything you hold to be right and true. So, so think back for a moment with me. For some of you, this will be harder than others. Uh, think back to your middle school or, or high school days. Go there with me for a moment. Um, for my folks who came up in homeschooling families, perhaps this analogy illustration won't work as well, uh, but you should be able to get the point. Put yourself back into a time when perhaps the way your parents had raised you was fundamentally different than the way in which you interacted with your peers. For some, this will look like pressure and feel like pressure to use cuss words. For others, it will look and feel like pressure to partake in alcohol. For others, it will look and feel like pressure to cross certain physical boundaries in, in, a, in a relationship. Think about the peer pressure that you felt when everything that you believed to be right and true and good was challenged. Do you have an example in your mind? Can you put yourself back into that situation? Can you remember all the thoughts and all the feelings in the way in which you were processing everything in, in front of you. Perhaps you said something like this to yourself. You know, everyone else is doing it. Or, I don't really see a problem with this anyways. Or, does it really matter whether I do this or not? Are there really any real consequences? Friends, this is what it looks like and this is how it feels when there is a decision point in front of you. When everything you believe to be true, everything you have been taught from a young age to be true, is challenged. It should come no surprise to you that supposedly the Christian days and decades of this country are behind us. Christian ethics, Christian morality has moved from the mainstream to the margins. More and more those who merely hold to orthodox biblical teachings are considered to be out of step with our Western culture. 
In other words, we are beginning to feel the weight of Peter's words in 1 Peter when he says, therefore live as sojourners and exiles. Our way of life, our way of viewing the world, our way of loving our neighbors and each other makes us exiles in our own homeland. More and more, those who truly want to follow Christ will have to make tough decisions about things in which how they live, things like the entertainment that they enjoy, the way in which they raise their children, the way they spend their free time. And if we're honest, these are decisions, these are ways of thinking that, that we should have been doing the entire time as disciples of Christ. But for, to, for too long, the culture in which we have walked has had a veneer of Christianity. You were simply a Christian because of the fact that you lived in America or, or lived in the West. But friends, the culture has shifted. And so we have a generation of Christians unsure of basic discipleship and how to follow this Jesus as sojourners, as exiles, because it's all been assumed up until this point. How do you live in a culture which fundamentally disagrees with you? How do you live in a society which says that you're wrong on every turn? How do you even begin to start to put the pieces together? I think more and more the church of our day will need to look to the saints of the past to know how to live in the present. I don't primarily mean looking to people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, or Charles Spurgeon, but rather looking back further to the Old and New Testament and the early church fathers which immediately followed that period after the end of the New Testament. People like Polycarp and Ignatius or Tertullian, Those who lived in the first, second, third century, these people who were trying to process Christianity, the teachings of Jesus in a society which disagreed wholesale with everything that they knew to be true. It was the early church's situation that looked more like ours does today. Christianity was not welcomed. Christianity was not mainstream. And those who would follow this Christ would live life at the margins. Similarly, as we have seen last week, Hannah who is the the favored one, lived life at the margins. She could not bear a child, and she was Elkanah's first wife. She had a rival in Paneah, who constantly, as someone uh, in in our community group this past week pointed out in the text, that it says, year by year, year by year endured suffering, hardships, persecution. The the, the sense is that this was not a one-time event, but that rather year by year, Penea gave Hannah grief over the fact that she could not bear a child. And you get the sense from chapter 1 of the book of Samuel that Hannah has fallen into this sort of deep depression about her current state of affairs. Church, I wonder, does, does Hannah's predicament remind you of your own situation? Of course, as we looked at last week, Hannah throws herself, rightly so, at the feet of God, the mercies of God, the Father. And he he answers. And he gives her the answer to her prayer. Notice that he, he, he gives her what she asked for. But remember the words the author used to turn the tide in chapter 1. If you have your Bibles open there, it's in verse 19, there near the end. 1 Samuel 1, 19, it says, And the Lord remembered her. Every time, every time that phrase is used in the Old Testament, it means that the Lord is intervening on behalf of his people. 
But not only the individual, but is intervening in the life of his people collectively. You see, the writer of Samuel wants you as the reader to read that sentence, and he remembered, the Lord remembered her, and think that this is not simply a story about a barren woman in search of a child. But it's rather a story about God intervening and doing something new within his chosen people. You see, Hannah knew that there was more going on to the story than just a son being born to her. She sings a song where she celebrates not only what God has done for her, but what he's going to do in the rebirth of his people. Samuel's birth was a sign that God was about to renew Israel, which remember, by the way, at this time, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, similar to our culture. Today, this leads us to our text this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we see Hannah's prayer uh, or, or song of response to what the Lord has done. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This text before us has three parts of which I did not alliterate for your hearing this morning. So we're just going to walk through these and take a swim through 1 Samuel chapter 2. The first part is that we see that, that, that God is matchless. God is matchless. The second part we see that is that God is the one who reverses the world. And the final part, we see that God is the judge. So God is matchless, the one who reverses and is the judge. So let's look at verse 1 again. Look at it with me. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I want you to notice that Hannah is speaking very personally here. This is something personal for her, about her relationship with God. Her, her emphasis is on the word my. It says, my heart exalts in the Lord. By this she means, of course, that, that her affections are for the Lord. In other words, she loves him. She realizes that without the Lord, she has no chance of ever getting pregnant. And, she, and, she, and so she prays that the Lord will give her a son, and he does. But this isn't a love because of something. Or this isn't a love, it's like she doesn't love the Lord merely because he's given her what she asked for. But rather, this is the state of her heart. 
She loves the Lord from her heart. The position of her heart was one of deep affections for the Lord. This is what kept her from bitterness in the midst of great stress and great anxiety. Great vexation is what she says. This is a theme, by the way, this, this idea that, uh, uh, that the, the, the heart, position of the heart becomes much more important than the external factors that would be picked up over and over again in Samuel and really in the rest of the Bible. We cannot merely give lip service to the Lord. That's why we need the Lord to give us new hearts because on our own we, we can never love the Lord the way Hannah loves the Lord here. She also says that her horn is exalted in the Lord. Let me break this down just a bit. Horn in the New Old Testament almost always referred to strength or might. So she is saying that, that her strength is exalted. Her, her might is lifted up in the Lord. And any time in Scripture where the horn is lowered, it's a sign of decreased strength and decreased might. Psalm 75 verse 10 gives us a picture where both this lifting up and this lower, the lowering of the horn Happens. It says this, All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So Hannah is saying that her strength, her vitality, her, her energy is lifted up in God the Father. And then she goes on and says, My mouth derides my enemies. Of course, here speaking of her rival, Penea. And then she tells us why. Because I rejoice in your salvation. You see, there's a natural progression here in verse 1 from their affections of the heart to the strength of her will to an overflow of joy in the presence of enemies. But all of this is extremely personal. You see, we can't disconnect chapter 2 from the events which happened in chapter 1. This faith, this love, this, uh, this might that she had, this joy in the Lord that she had was her own faith, her own joy. And the similar is true with us. Our faith in God is always our own faith. We should not rely on the blessing of others and never know the full joy that we could find ourselves in Jesus. And because it is our own faith in the Lord, our own love of Him, this will be the source which we endure to the end. If you try to serve God out of what's comfortable, then all it takes is culture to shift ways a little bit, and all of a sudden, serving the Lord doesn't seem that comfortable anymore. It is God's love for us and our love for Him which sustains us as followers of Christ while we live as exiles and while we live as sojourners. Hannah was an exile in her own home. You and I are exiles in our own culture. Look at verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah moves from herself very quickly. One verse devoted to her affections, her strength, uh, her joy in the Lord. Moves very quickly to the matchless Lord. Similar to three lines about my heart, my horn, my mouth. Here she has three lines for the Lord. And again, she's connecting this, or the author of Samuel is connecting this for you to the larger story about God and drawing on themes from the Old Testament. Notice this, this uh, uh, none holy like the Lord. This kind of language comes from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, which says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls, 
on the ground. She goes on and says that, that, that there are none beside the Lord. This, of course, comes from the similar language of Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer, of course, is no one. Which is where she goes in the next part. There is no rock like our God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4 says, The rock... Speaking of the Lord, His work is perfect for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. You see, what Hannah's doing is she's moving from herself to the one in which she is praying or singing to, to the Lord, this matchless Lord. She's declaring in her prayer, in her song, that the God is matchless. There's no one like Him. And so should you and I, by the way. But the author here is also doing something more. Because you'll notice that this entire section of 1 Samuel chapter 2 is set in poetry. In poetry, if you have uh, uh, perhaps uh, the Bibles in front of you, you'll see that this is offset, not like the narrative language. And so anytime you see this, you've got to stop and ask yourself, well, why is that important? What's the author doing here? In 2 Samuel, the end of the book of chapter of the book of Samuel, chapter 22, you have a, a similar poetic section of the book where you have similar language and similar themes. Things like the Lord is my rock, David declares, or the Lord is the horn of my salvation or the Lord is my savior. You see, from this, you, you understand that the, the opening is, by the way, this is just how you should read books, by the way, unless it's like a, I don't know. Like, generally, if you want to know the, a book of the Bible, what's the, what's the main thrust of this book? What's the main purpose of this book? Generally, a helpful way to do that is to read the first couple of chapters and then read the last couple of chapters. What themes pick up on? What, what is then repeated, uh, what's stated in the beginning and repeated at the end is generally a good way to get what is a sense of the entire book. And so you get this sense of the entire book in the book of Samuel about these ideas that the Lord is my rock, the Lord is my horn of, this, of my salvation, the Lord is my savior. But this text also points back to another song, another prayer, after God had miraculously intervened for his people. You see, this poem echoes forth the same themes that are presented in Exodus chapter 15, where immediately after the Lord has freed Israel across dry ground through the Red Sea, Exodus 15 happens, where they sing the song of Moses or, or pray the prayer of Moses, which begins like this, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. All of this to point us to, to show us that what's beginning to happen as we begin this journey through the book of Samuel is that this is not just a story about Hannah and her barrenness, or even Samuel, the son, or Saul or David, the major characters we'll meet later, but rather that the point of all of this is that God's action in giving Hannah a son are the means by which he will rescue his people. This is a story about God. Hannah then moves in the prayer to instruct those listening on how they ought to live in the world and why, which is our second point. God is the one who reverses the world. Look with me at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. 
Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. It is as though she's telling God's people that if God is all that she says he is, namely the matchless one, the one of, who is holy, the one that we should uh, revere and, and bring our problems to, the one that we should worship, if he is that, then we should be careful about exalting ourselves over against him. Furthermore, against his people. You see, it's a warning that if we are proud and arrogant, not humble, then we're going to have massive problems because this is the God who reverses the way the world appears to be. Like, like in life, you and I immediately rank everything we see. Do you believe this? I believe it. Convinced of this, that we rank literally everything we see. Which of these meals is better? Which of these shows provides more entertainment? In the language of my children, which of these is worser? And we are always measuring based on what we can see. We're always ranking ourselves against other people, our righteousness against their righteousness, or or perhaps even worse, our sinfulness against their sinfulness. We're always measuring based upon ranking on what we can see on the outside because that's what's visible for us. But notice that, that this is not where Hannah goes with it. She just merely says that she, God is the God who reverses things. And God is the one who looks at the heart. I wonder, does that language sound familiar to you? This idea that God is the one who looks on the heart, it also pops up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When Samuel's being led, David, as the king, it says this, this is what the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him, talking about uh, uh, Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is a recurring theme in the book of Samuel, the idea that God sees our hearts. And we have it here all the way back in the beginning of chapter 2 where God reverses the world and puts things as they ought to be. Look again at these verses. You've got things like the mighty being broken, yet the weak have strength. You have those who have plenty now have no food, and and those who are hungry are no longer hungry. You have those who have no children now have children, yet those who had many now have none. And verse 6 tells us that the Lord is the one who kills and takes down Sheol, and it is the Lord who brings to life and raises up. He makes the poor and the rich. Hannah knows that it is the Lord who has the power and is willing to intervene in the human experience. And then she gives the reason why there at the end of verse 8. For, or because, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Hannah's plea in the song is that the reader, you and I, will see in the rest of this story in Samuel, that even that you and I should live and walk humbly before the Lord. But not only you and I, but even kings should 
walk and live humbly before the Lord. The writers of the Old Testament understood that sometimes in life, it looks as if what God is doing might be misunderstood. For example, Job. You have Job's friends who thought that Job is obviously sinning in his life. That's why he has all these problems, right? His wife says, curse God and die. And yet it's not until you get to the end of the book of Job that you find out. The reader already knows that it's, it's God who's testing Job, but Job and his friends don't know that. And so the whole book is them wrestling through, like, what in the world is God doing? And then it ends with Job declaring before the Lord that he knows nothing and that God uh, is right to do what he will do. Or example, in Psalm chapter 73, a psalm of Asaph, as he wrestles and struggles with the fact that the wicked seem to get off scot-free. The wicked are the ones who prosper and the righteous are the ones who perish. The point being in the wisdom literature that sometimes we can misunderstand what God's actions are meant to be producing in our lives. And Hannah's point here is that God is the one who reverses it all. God is the one who reverses it all. Of course, this great theme of reversal is not only contained in the book of Samuel, but it comes to its fullest expression in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the model of true humility. He lived a life before God in utter dependence upon him, which, by the way, is how you and I should live our lives. And he did it without sin. Jesus' life was exactly the kind of life that Hannah said, uh, all you people and, by the way, all you kings should live like this. And yet, his life was not crowned with exaltation, but with the dishonor of death on a cross. That's why the cross and the crucifixion of Christ is so paradoxical. The call to you and I is to believe this text, to believe what it teaches us about God. This is how, uh, this is how you live life as exiles. Like this, humbly, not with arrogance, not with bitterness. Our culture is not as kind to followers of Christ as it once was. And my admonition to you today is, who cares? Who cares? That just means that now we actually have to wrestle with and believe the book. It means we need to believe that God is the one who reverses all things because we're no longer at the top of society. Listen, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecution. Will be persecuted. But your persecution is not your end. Your desperation, your despair, your depression about the way the world seems to be going is not the end. It wasn't for Hannah, it wasn't for Jesus, and it won't be for you if you're a follower of Christ. And, and why is that? I'm glad you asked. Look with me at verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. We know that persecution and humiliation is not our end because God is the judge. Hannah has already said in verse 3 that the Lord is a God of knowledge and that he and by him our actions are weighed. Here she applies that knowledge and that weighing of actions into two groups. His faithful ones and the wicked ones. 
which if you remember uh, the, the summer of Psalms last summer, about this time last summer, when we looked at Psalm verse 1, it's all of life is divided into two categories. Those who follow Christ and those who don't. There are no middle ground. There is no middle ground. There are no middle people. The sense of what Hannah means here is when the text says the faithful ones, is that those who are the beneficiaries of God's steadfast love and are therefore in a relationship with him. You see, Hannah's call is a call to the children of Israel to, hey, listen, look, believe. God is still in control. And if you're one of the faithful ones, then he will guard your feet. This, of course, is true for us today as Christians because Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because we earn it, but because he freely gives it. The rest are the wicked ones who the Lord, it says, the Lord will cut off in darkness. These are the ones who are, on the other hand, are not in relationship with God. But watch here as she lands the plane in verse 10. The entire song is pulled together and the entire thing becomes very prophetic. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. By the way, this isn't nice language, by the way. This is not nice language. We're telling our kids all the time to, to be nice, and oftentimes I'll, I will like stop myself in the middle of be nice and try to find other words to describe how I want them to be. Be more like Jesus. Love these people. But we live in a day in a society which has conflated niceness with Christianity. Listen, think about it. We've conflated niceness with followers of Jesus. Now it is true, as followers of Jesus, we should be nice. However, that means that your best friend, who is just the nicest person in the world, if they don't know Jesus, then they fall into the bucket of people, which the Bible says are adversaries. With all of their niceness, adversaries of the Lord. And she goes on, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his Anointed. Now watch this, because the text all of a sudden takes on this role where Hannah is no longer talking about her situation. She says, he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Notice that she, she lands the plane with where she started, with this exalting of a horn. Only this time it is the Lord who is exalting the horn, not of Hannah. Remember in verse 1, it was her horn uh, that was exalted. This time it's the horn of his anointed. This means that the passage is not just so much about her, her own strength, her own horn, her own son, but rather it's the horn of David. This idea of a, a king coming, this idea of an anointed person becomes a repeated theme in the book of Samuel. It's first mentioned here. The author wants you to take note of this. Saul, who we'll meet in just a few weeks, is often referred to as the Lord's anointed by David. Like the scenes where like Saul or you know, David's given the opportunity to strike dead Saul and all of his problems, what's he say? He says, who am I to strike the Lord's anointed? You see, this language becomes important to hold the whole story together, what we're actually talking about. David, the shepherd boy turned king, is often referred to as the Lord's anointed. But this is pointing to a day, right? He says, my king. At this point in the story, there is no king in Israel. 
But Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, had told Abraham the promise that God had given Abraham that from your line kings will come. This is the progression of the story. The story takes on the next stage. The song anticipates that God will reorder society. It's the theme of the entire book. The book unfolds with the despised ones like Israel or Hannah or David. The despised ones become the great ones. Why? Because it is God who judges the world. It is God who reverses society. It is God who is the matchless one. And of course, this anointed one, this word anointed, by the way, is the Messiah. It's where we actually get Christ, right? You know, everyone knows that Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's his title, Jesus the Messiah. A helpful way to actually uh, train your brain to think about this is anytime you're reading the New Testament, you come across Jesus Christ, just read it, Jesus the Messiah. And when you read the New Testament that way, you will automatically begin to see how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you've always struggled with how does the New Testament relate to the Old Testament, just simply try reading the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and replace Christ with the Messiah. It's amazing. It's amazing. So here he's saying that, uh, that he will exalt the horn of his anointed. All, all, ultimately, particularly he's talking about David, but ultimately because the scriptures now speak to all of life, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus will be exalted. Jesus will get, be given strength. You say, well, how, how do you know that, Pastor? You can't just up there saying stuff. Flip over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Because Luke, as he's writing his gospel, one of the, one of the great things that we see uh, that uh, Luke does with Jesus is he s- constantly provides us an illustration and a portrayal of Jesus that is absolutely radical to the way the world is actually working. That's why, by the way, like Luke often mentions more about money than other, any of the other three Gospels. Right? He talks a lot about the poor, the downtrodden, the broken in spirit. And you say, well, where's, where does he get all this language? How does he know to show Jesus like this? Look at, verse, look at chapter 1. Look down at verse 46. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, and I'm landing the plane here. It says, Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, Forever, You see, Mary picks up and repeats the same themes from Hannah's song or Hannah's prayer. Themes of reversal, themes of restoration, themes of salvation. You get imagery and even the same words where it talks about the, the, the hungry are filled with good things, the rich being sent away empty. You see, Hannah is re, or Mary is repeating and reframing for us what Hannah's song was ultimately pointing to. 
The passage, uh, this passage scripture uh, in, in, in Samuel chapter 2 becomes the song of Mary in Luke chapter 1. And by the way, is the song of you and I today. How do you live in a world where you are in exile, where you are a sojourner? You live like Hannah. You live like Jesus. You sing songs to yourself and to those in the family of God that remind you this is the way the world actually works. That God is reversing. He's putting right side up the world which is wrong side down. You and I as followers of Christ find in Jesus the way in which God is actually going to do it. The New Testament folks, people who lived in Jesus' time, they thought they were going to expect another David-type king, someone to come in and set all things right by physical might. And the question the New Testament answers is, how is God going to answer Hannah? How is God going to actually do that? To punish the wicked, to, uh, to uh, guard the feet of his faithful one, how is he going to do all that? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is how he's going to do it. The song of Mary in Luke chapter 1 is how Luke portrays the radical Jesus in the gospel of Luke. So how do you and I live in a world where we are at constant tension and dissonance with our culture? Because that's where we're at, folks. That's where we're at. We've got to be serious. We can no longer just assume everyone uh, around us is Christian. There's a bad assumption to begin with, by the way. The bad assumption. This song of, of, of Hannah and now of Mary is the song. This song should be for us a source of deep and dangerous hope in a world which does not follow Christ. The question is do we believe it? Do we lean into it? Do we walk it out? Do we actually live in such a way where we think that God's actually going to do this kind of reversal and that He has done it in Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which speaks to us where we are. Uh, your word has never uh, led anyone to a lie, Father. And so we, we come to it this morning with not full understanding, but with full faith seeking understanding. We don't have to try to prove that your word is true. Because it comes from your character, and your character is right true, faithful, good, gracious. So therefore we can trust it, we can believe it. And then we can walk in light of it in a world which uh, is all the more becoming more and more hostile to those of us who follow your son, Father. We believe and we trust in, not in legislation, not in uh, right politics or anything like that, but rather we trust in the Savior. We trust that Jesus has done the great reversal. And now we live in a time where we're just waiting for the final consummation, the final completion of all things. Father, we believe this to be true. We, we lean into it. We press into it. Uh, and we disregard what the world says. I pray that you would put in our backs uh, a, a spine of steel, Father. We would not cave to the world around us. And where we have caved, may we repent and come to you once again. 
Father, we pray that we would be filled with hope as Hannah was filled with hope in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.